gospel. Good morning. And good morning to those watching in traditions and online. And our Ording Valley campus is with us this morning. So shout out to Darren and Danielle. And I just, I have to confess, because my wife is down there leading worship, and she's going to be watching me on the screen the next 40 minutes. So there's a little, this is a safe place for me right now <laughs> until lunchtime. No, just kidding. But I, I, she hates it when I do this, but I did not wear my wedding ring today. I know. Just public shame. Jeanette, I'm sorry. Darren, Danielle, you might need to do a little counseling after service, but uh, yeah, to try to redeem that, because I don't know what it is. Anybody else, is anybody like, my wife's like, you never take your wedding ring off until you die. Yeah, you guys, are, yeah, you're better than me. I'm like, uh, at the end of the day, I, it's an accessory. Like, I take my watch off, I take my wedding ring off. Anyways, so we traveled this week. This is me trying to segue back into something worthwhile talking about. Jeanette, I love you. Uh, but we, we just got back late last night from the Priority One Conference once a year. Sam Johnson brings together some of the missionaries that we have helped build training facilities for. And they share some of the stories. And Sam presents projects for the coming year that all of us pastors and churches will kind of get on board with. You'll hear more about that. If you're not familiar with Priority One, they build Bible training facilities for the under-resourced and often persecuted church around the world so that they can train leaders to continue continue to plant churches or improve churches, that kind of thing, in parts of the country or parts of the world where that's difficult. And I just want to say, I was just so overwhelmed with gratitude and humility hearing the stories of some of the church planters and missionaries around the world. It is so hard for us to understand what it would be like to serve God in a place where you are persecuted by the government actively, where, people, where policemen can show up at the door of your church service and just lock you down and forbid you to go in or drag people out and beat them and put them in jail. And we're hearing stories from people who have been dragged out of priority one training facilities that we have helped build and put in prison or beaten. Right? We're hearing stories about people that were part of a police force sent to persecute the church. They came to know Jesus because of the humility and godliness of the people they were persecuting. And then they went and were trained to be pastors in the very priority one buildings that we helped build. And so, you know, I just want to share that with you. When you talk about Mission Forward and next week we're going to make our pledges to Mission Forward, these are real people in real places, and almost 100% of them are far more difficult places than we have to live out our faith in. And so just so humbled to be there with Sam and those missionaries and pastors and excited to see what God is doing around the world. God is always winning, even when we don't quite see it and we don't quite feel it. And we're gonna keep winning too. Does that sound good to everybody? Let's just keep winning. And we wanna win at one specific thing. You know, here around Sound Life Church, we like to say that we exist to help people flourish through knowing Jesus. Now, we might, we, we might hone in on the flourishing idea like, wow, that sounds great. I wanna live the abundant life that Jesus saved us to live. I wanna live life to its fullest like Jesus called us to. I wanna live life the way God, my creator, created me to, to, to live. But the key phrase there is knowing Jesus. Because there is no life and there is no flourishing without knowing Jesus. There just isn't. That's why God sent his son, Jesus, to come and live a human life perfectly, unlike all of us, right? He gave that life on the cross to pay the price of our sin before a just God. 
And then he rose from the dead to say, I have more life than you know what to do with. I wanna give it to you. He poured out his Holy Spirit to lead us into the flourishing life that he created us for, that he has saved us for, and that he has called us to live out in a broken and dying world as evidence that he loves people, he came to save them, and he can turn their lives around. We are part of that evidence, and we are called to flourish through knowing Jesus. We need a spirit to teach us how to do it. Right, And that's why these last few weeks we've talked about having a good work-rest balance, Right, that God created us to do good work, but he also created us with a need for a rhythm of rest. And so we flourish when we hold work and rest in that right balance. Right, When we manage our time and our energy the way that God created us to, we flourish. And when we get either of those things out of whack, the work out of, out of balance or the rest out of balance, then we begin to, to sink into a destructive lifestyle, right? And so you don't Sabbath to get saved. You get saved so that you can Sabbath, right? You, Jesus saves you from an unhealthy work-rest balance so you can live life the way it was meant to be lived. And that's the way everything is in life. Jesus saves us from unhealthy modes of living and thinking so that he can lead us into healthy, godly, God-reflecting modes of living and thinking. So Sabbath and work is about using our time and energy the way, the way that God created us to. But that brings us to another difficult topic, right? If we're gonna be good stewards of our time and energy, there's another key area of life that we have to steward, and it's not as fun of one to talk about, right? A lot of people were like, I'm into this Sabbath idea. I could take a day off, right? We're gonna talk about a different area that you may not be as happy that I'm talking about. And I just want you to know, it's one that, that I wrestle with. I don't want you to feel the wrong way about it, but I also, as your pastor, need to talk to you about it because it's one of the most controlling issues in human existence. In every culture, in every generation, it's been this way, but I think in cultures like ours, it's even more of a threat. It's something that is often in the top three list in every generation of counselors. It's in the top three of why marriages go through struggles, conflict, and divorce. It's one of the most common stressors in every adult, no matter what age you are, married, single, this is one of the most common causes of stress in our society, and it's not unique to our society. It's one of the things that is a part of our everyday lives, it's a part of our long-term future, it's a part of our past, it's something that has potential to control us, and it often keeps us from, from flourishing. It's money, right? If you haven't guessed it by now, it's money. And, and money is one of those things that the Bible talks about a lot more than sometimes we might like it to talk about it, right? We like to think about money as our business and not anybody else's business. And when you read through the New Testament, have you noticed that Jesus likes to talk about all the things that you think are your business and not anybody else's business? He's like, let's talk about marriage. Let's talk about singleness. Let's talk about sexuality. Let's talk about your money, that maybe isn't as much yours as you thought. Maybe it's actually his, and he lets you borrow it. 
right? And so we need to talk about our money. And I really believe um, that the Lord put this on my heart to talk about the next couple of weeks for a specific reason. If, you've, if you have had your antenna up in any realm in our society, you hear people talking about the economy. What's going to happen with the economy? And what's going to happen with our, our government and all the national debt and all the housing market and all the job situation and all oh, this and that. And, and I'll just say those are all very concerning things if you don't steward your money the way that God has called you to. But if you do, here's the interesting thing about God. When you steward your life the way that God has saved you to steward it and called you to steward it and you steward it in light of his word, here's the amazing promises that God makes. He says, hey, you live in a broken world where everything is threatened with disease, destruction, and death. Think about it. Everything in this world is threatened by disease, destruction, and death. Those are the results of sin in this world. And the blessing of God is when God says, because you are walking in my ways, I will protect you from disease and destruction and even death in ways that you cannot explain, in ways that you can't mathematically compute, but I can do it because I'm God. And money is one of those ways. But money is not just a mathematical issue. Money is a heart issue. Money's a spirit issue. And I want to look this morning at one of Jesus' key teachings on money. It's in the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' core teachings on what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a citizen of his new kingdom. And <clears throat> hard to question the Sermon on the Mount, pretty, pretty critical piece of the New Testament, really a basis for how Christians began to live from that point forward and still today. And Jesus says this in Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. He says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them, rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. So money and possessions. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. If you have a real Bible, underline that verse. If you have a Bible app, highlight that verse. Verse 22, your eye or your focus is like a lamp, like a flashlight, a lantern that provides light for your body. When your eye, your focus is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light that you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. Interestingly, he compares money with our focus in life. And he says, if your focus is on the right thing, your life is gonna be full of light. Your life is going to flourish. But if your focus is on the wrong things and you think it's the right things, you are so deceived, you don't even know how dark your situation is. And if you have known Jesus for a little while, he's revealed to you that there's been some seasons in your life where that was absolutely true. You were so focused on the wrong thing, you didn't even realize how wrong you were, right? He, he gives us those moments so that we realize, wow, God, I really do need you. But he's applying this specifically to money. And he says this whole thing, he says, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. And Jesus makes this interesting point about money, that money shows us something that we might not want it to show. Where you put your money, and many Christian teachers as a result of this have said things like, if you show me where you spend your money, I'll show you what you love the most in life. Show me where your money goes, 
and I'll show you what you're most loyal to. And for a lot of us, that, you know, that's, that's not necessarily anything to feel super guilty about. You know, your money goes to bills or your money goes to your kids or your money goes to different things that, you know, your money goes to taxes, right? Things that, that you might not feel like you have a lot of control over. But Jesus says, you know, where your money is, that shows what your heart desires and loves the most. Money reveals what we love most. And I want you to think about that for a moment. If we just kind of put your budget up here on the screen and said, hey guys, uh, according to John's budget, and there's a lot of Johns in the room right now, according to John's budget, what would you say is the biggest priority in his life, right? If we put Darren and Danielle's budget up on the screen, in fact, it's gonna come up in ordering right now. No, just kidding. Put Darren and Danielle, what would you say Darren and Danielle love the most? And actually, in a couple of weeks, no, I don't think Darren and Danielle love money the most, okay? (laughs) But, you know, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to show you a breakdown of how Jeanette and I do our budget, because I think it's important that you know that that I'm practicing what I'm preaching. I want to show you practically how we do this in our lives and how this has worked out in our lives. And so we'll get there. But what I want you to think about is what, what does your budget show about what you love the most, right? Matthew 6, 24, the next verse, Jesus kind of takes it up a notch. He makes it a little more serious. He says, here's the deal. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other one. That's pretty extreme. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Now, many translations use a word there that was, was a kind of a commonplace word for both money, but was also the name of an ancient Near Eastern god that was the god of wealth, and that word is mammon. And so what Jesus was literally saying here, he was using a word that could be interpreted either way. You could either interpret this as just kind of day-to-day money, no spiritual value, or you could interpret it as the god of wealth that people would worship and sacrifice to, thinking this god would give them unnatural wealth. And so he says, here, he's like, you you can't be devoted to both. You can only be devoted to one thing. And if you've been around for a while, you know that one of our core values here is devotion to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, hey, you might want to be devoted to me, but if you're devoted to your money, you won't be devoted to me. And your money actually shows me in a very practical way where your devotion is. Are we getting uncomfortable? Are we all uncomfortable? Are we all equally uncomfortable? I know. Uh, Me too. Me too. But that's what Jesus wants. He wants us to grow through some of the things that hold us in bondage in life. Now he goes on and he kind of applies this really practically. And I want want you to, to see this as we read on in verses 25 through 33. He says, that's why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? I mean, look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field. and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. 
And if God cares so wonderfully for the wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat and what will we drink and what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. So seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything that you need. So Jesus sums up these teachings on money in, by, by saying that money reveals who we trust. Money reveals who we trust. He kind of points out some common things like how often are you worried about what you're gonna eat? Now, I don't ever need to worry about what I'm gonna eat, but I often worry about what I'm gonna eat. What am I having for dinner tonight? What am I gonna have for lunch today? What am I gonna have for breakfast this morning? What's in the fridge? What's in the cupboards, right? I don't need to worry about it, but sometimes that becomes the greatest concern of my day. Or, you know, how about the clothing? Now, some of you, usually there's at least one in every household that is extremely concerned with the clothing that they have, and they always need more. Let the elbows fly around the room, right? (laughs) But Jesus is saying, why are you worried about the things that you need? In most cultures, these aren't extras, these are needs, right? In most cultures, there aren't closets full of clothes and pantries full of food. It's a day-to-day sustenance thing, even today in the world, right? And so Jesus is saying to many people that actually are worried about what they're gonna eat, that are worried about what they're gonna wear, why are you worried about these things? Don't you trust me? I mean, the birds trust me. And I make the flowers look good, even though they're gonna turn over pretty quickly. Like, why are you worried? And he roots our love of money and our money revealing what we love most and and who the master of our life is. He roots it in this idea of what are we afraid of losing? What are we afraid of not getting? What are we worried about? And often, if we really thought about why money becomes stressful in our lives, it's stressful because we see it as our source of all the things that we want and maybe need. We, we know that if we have enough money or we believe that if we have enough money, we can get what we need, we can get what we want, but we also know that if we don't have enough money, then we'll never get what we want or what we need. But money's limited, so it leaves us with this never quite enough feeling. You ever looked at your budget and you're like, ah, there's not quite enough. But money was never meant to be our source. Money is a resource, Right? And, and James 1 says that every good thing comes from God. That he's the one that provides good things. That he is the source of everything good that we need and want. And so if we need money, God is the source of that money. If we have money, God is the source of that money. God is the source. Everything else is just a resource. And when we look at money, Jesus is saying, hey, money's not evil, He says elsewhere, love of money is a root of evil. But money's not evil. Money is just a resource. It's just a thing. It's a tool to be used. Money is just a resource, and God is the real source. That's the truth. But what Jesus wants us to realize is that sometimes our hearts stray from trusting God, from loving God, from being loyal to God, from following God. 
and we begin to put all of those hopes and dreams in our money. God gives us a lot of different resources. In fact, everything good in your life does come from God, and God expects us to steward everything in our life the way he would, the way he calls us to. And today, I want to teach you or talk through with you the biblical model of tithes and offerings. This is the biblical model of how Christians and before Christians, Jews, and before Jews, the people of faith that were not yet formed into a nation of Israel, this is how they navigated financial stewardship in a way that honored God. And here's the, here's the thing I want you to know right off the bat. You don't need to feel guilty and ashamed if you're not doing this. You don't need to sit there and feel like, oh man, I'm just a horrible Christian or I can never go to church here. Or, I don't belong in the SLC family. No, we're all on a journey growing together. But what you do need to understand is that God has laid out a plan for us and he says, hey, if you'll trust me with this, there's gonna be good things in store for you. And we're gonna talk more about that blessing principle next week and how, God, how that works and how God likes to do that. But this week I wanna talk about the model that he's laid out for us. But let's take the, take the easy one. I'll give you a simple explanation of offering. The, the model of tithes and offerings it really separates our financial stewardship before God into two categories, tithes and offerings. And offerings, you see throughout the Old Testament, you see those in New Testament, offerings are really a free will thing. They're when you offer something that you don't have to offer. Offerings are when you give anything out of your own desire or interest to either worship God or to help somebody else. In fact, even in the Old Testament where many of their offerings were things that, hey, if you feel guilty, make this offering. If you've sinned, make this offering. If there's something, some sort of conflict between you and God, here's the kind of offering you can bring to acknowledge before God that you wanna make it right. But there was also a couple of offerings that you didn't have to do. They were just, if you just love God and you wanna do this, then it was called a free will offering. And as Christians, we are invited to be prompted by the Holy Spirit to make free will offerings towards compassion, towards missions. That's really what Mission Forward is all about. It's one of our kind of organized church versions of a free will offering, right? That we say, hey, I want to help with what God's doing in the world. I give to this. Offering is not something that's required. It's something that should be the overflow of a life that trusts God and understands his mission and what life is is really all about. But tithing is something different. Tithing is based on the first fruit principle in scripture. And you see the first fruit principle, and the reason it's the first fruit principle is because it was taught in an era of, of agricultural society where everything was about the fruitfulness of the land, the fruitfulness of the womb, both for human families and for livestock. That, that these were all things that were out of people's control. They knew what to do to try to set themselves up for agricultural success, but any plague, any disease, any bad weather season, all sorts of things in this world could destroy the fruitfulness in an agricultural society. And we might think that's a little different. Sometimes we get used to like, well, I get paid on these days every month. You know, my boss has to pay me. And we've gotten comfortable, even in a society that has a little bit of economic shaking, we have a pretty comfortable society. We don't worry about like, am I gonna, you know, am I gonna get fired from job after job? Am I never gonna be able to find a job? Now, some of you might be worried about that. And if you, you are, you know, come meet me this week. I will take you down to taco time and we will get you started because they're hiring, <laughs> right? Like it, it's not that hard to find a job 
in our society. And when you find a job, you will get a paycheck. But many places in the world, that's not very guaranteed at all. And if you're like, I'm above taco time, first of all, we need to eat at taco time because it's, it's good. I like it. I'm a, it's a fave. But secondly, we're not above that, right? We're not above doing our steps for God's provision. And that's, they understood that, but there was this first fruit principle that we see in a number of places in Scripture. And one place is in Exodus 23, 19, where it says, As you harvest your crops, bring the very best of the first harvest to the house of the Lord your God. And if you did nothing else but took that verse, Exodus 23, 19, and you said, you know what, I'm going to practice this. I'm going to give the best of the first to the house of my God. You're essentially tithing. Now, Scripture gives us some more parameters on this, but I want you to also understand the context in which this was given. If you were a farmer, my dad grew up on a farm, on a family farm, a subsistence farm in the state of Iowa, and he has told me stories about years when the weather wasn't good or, or a disease came through and killed some of their livestock, and it was a rough year. Like, there was a lot less food to go around, and sometimes they went into debt in those years that they hoped they would pay off in a surplus year. Kind of something that I haven't grown up with. It's hard for me to imagine that. But in this agricultural society, imagine the farmer who when the first harvest comes, when the freshest food is available, it has been the longest since the farmer has had fresh food. Many farms, they harvest for a season and they find ways to preserve that food for the rest of the year round. They have to preserve some of the seed for next year's crop. And not only that, but at the time of the harvest, the farmer has worked hard for months and months without any results to his work. So when that first harvest comes, the farmer is at his weariest, he's at his hungriest, He's at his greatest longing for those fresh fruits of his harvest. And that's exactly when God says, I want you to give the best. I want you to give the best apple on that apple tree. I want you to give the best lamb from your flock. I want you to give the best grain, the best wine, the best in this agricultural society. I want you to give the best and I want you to give it to me first. It's the worst time to tell a farmer to give away something. And in agricultural society, you don't know how good the harvest is gonna be at the beginning. You don't always know how many more crops might come in. You don't always know how the weather is gonna hold out. You don't always know those things. So to give the best and the first, there's a sacrifice involved there. There's a cost involved there. But God is saying, if you really believe that I'm your provider, then I get first dibs. I get first dibs. I get the best and I get the first. Now this doesn't make sense to me. When I understand the grace and the compassion of God, it's hard for me to understand, God, this seems a little harsh. But as we, as we study this principle, we see why. Here's the thing, it's important for all of us to realize that we are not our own best provider. Because you could have the smartest farmer that has the best equipment, that works harder than all the other farmers, and one storm could wipe out everything. One disease could wipe out everything. One swarm of locusts could eat everything. And there were times when that happened, right? 
And I'll just tell you this, you might be the most talented, most intelligent, most hardworking person, and in a broken world, that does not make you immune to an abusive boss who just wants to get rid of you, does it? That doesn't make you immune to a lawsuit coming out of nowhere. That doesn't make you immune to a life-changing accident that means you can no longer do the career that you trained for and were really good at. In a broken world where death and destruction and disease reign because of human sin and the power of the devil, we are at the mercy of brokenness unless we have a different God than those things. Unless we say, I am not my own provider. My systems and my intelligence and my own ability are not my provider. God is my provider, and I will prove it to you. Devil, disease, destruction, and death, I will prove it to you. Because I don't need the first and the best. Because God has more in store for me than that. And so God gave Israel a way to set themselves apart that was based on people that had gone before them. But suffice it to say this, that when we use the word tithe, tithing is about giving God your first and your best. And we see this from the very first offering in scripture. Do you know that in Genesis chapter three, you can read about Abel. Abel, who was a farmer, who had to work in a sin-stricken world. He had to work the ground when the ground was no longer very workable anymore. It wasn't the Garden of Eden. It was a cursed world. But Abel was a farmer, and he, gave, or he was a shepherd, and he gave the first, the first and best lamb from his flock to God. And it was because Abel gave the first, and Cain just gave some of the leftovers that God honored Abel's offering and he despised Cain's offering. Cain gave the leftovers. Cain gave what was easy to give. Abel gave what was hard to give. Why? Because Abel knew in this broken world, if God's not not my provider, I'm hurting. I need God more than I need the first lamb of the flock. And so, We see this in the beginning, and then later, before the Old Testament law was ever given, we see Abraham, who Galatians calls the father of all who will have faith. In the New Testament, we are supposed to look past before the Old Testament law, look at Abraham, and live by faith in many ways similarly to Abraham. And Abraham, when he came into some spoils of war that he knew he couldn't take credit for, it took a miracle of God to give him. What did he do? The first and best tenth of the spoils of war he took to the priest, Melchizedek deck and said, this is for you. Before I pay my soldiers, before I pay back anybody else, I'm giving this back to God because he's my provider and my protector. And then his grandson, Jacob, later when God spoke to him, Jacob says, man, God, if you bless me the way you said you're going to bless me, I will give you a tenth, the first tenth of whatever you give me, I will give back to you, God. And so not only do we see tithe being about giving the first and the best, we see tithe begin to take shape as the first and best tenth of whatever God has given you. And that's where the word tithe comes from. Tithe just means tenth. And the tithe just becomes the first and best tenth. And that became codified in the Old Testament law. In Leviticus 27, 30, it says, one-tenth of the produce of the land, whether grain from the fields, fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord and must be set apart to him as holy. Did you catch there that it belongs to God? It doesn't belong to you and me. It actually belongs to God. God's like, hey, this is for you to take care of your family, 
But just to demonstrate that this is a relationship, I want you to give the first tenth back to me. That actually is mine. I'm giving the rest to you. And so he commands Israel to do that, and he says, and it's because it belongs to the Lord and must be set apart to him as holy. It's sacred. It's worship. It's so amazing, but God doesn't just live in the spiritual, and we live in this earthly world. God wants the earthly world to match the spiritual world. And tithing is a way that our finances match the economy of heaven rather than suffer in the economy of the world. When we tithe, we say, God, because this is connected to you, all of my finances are connected to you. And God's like, bam, that money is processed in the heavenly economy. That money is now going to be handled in the heavenly market. This is not the world's stock market that goes up and down at random. And right when you're about to retire, your 401k bottoms out. No, it's an eternal investment. And God says, I'll honor that for eternity. A tithe is giving the first and best tenth of whatever blessings the Lord has given you back to him. First and best tenth back to him. Interestingly, this applied not only to uh, the agricultural produce, it, it applied to their livestock, and it even applied to their families. God said, hey, to be honest, I also control the fruitfulness of your human wombs so your firstborn child is dedicated to me. Now, he gave them a process by which they could take the best lamb of their flock and they could offer it as a sacrifice because God never wanted people to kill their kids. Other ancient Near Eastern gods were worshipped because they were demons by killing children. God said, your child belongs to me, but to show that, you can make another animal offering, another animal sacrifice. And so they would choose the best lamb of their flock and they would offer it as a sacrifice to say, God, I know that my children come from you and this firstborn belongs to you. In some cases, like Hannah, we see Hannah bring her firstborn son Samuel and literally say to the priest, I want you to raise him. He belongs to God. He belongs to God. And then maybe the most beautiful case of someone dedicating their first and best, not for all, sorry, firstborn children. I'm a firstborn, so sometimes first and best, you know. <sighs> right, Stella? You're, are you with me? Sorry, Jeanette, again. <laughs> Youngest child. Okay, um, all that to say, what was I talking about? Okay, f- the best, the most beautiful, wow, Lord, forgive me. The most beautiful example of this is that who gave their firstborn child as a sacrifice, a perfect and spotless lamb to redeem all of the other children. God himself gave his son Jesus. God himself, in, a, in essence, tithed in order to redeem the rest of his fruitfulness, all of humankind. He dedicated the firstborn to redeem all of the rest of us. God did not, he, he demonstrates what he asks us to demonstrate. So this was something that God did throughout the Old Testament, but you also see evidence of tithing in the New Testament. And some would argue this, and that's okay. You can argue it if you want. I would just say, how are you demonstrating more that God is in charge of your finances than, than following this principle? 
But tithing seems understood in the New Testament. For instance, Jesus said this in Luke eleven forty-two. 42. He said, what sorrow awaits you, Pharisees? For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things, which is a good reminder to us as well that serving God is more than writing checks. Serving God is more than giving money. If you feel like giving the mission forward excuses you from living the mission forward every week, do not give another penny. I don't want it. I don't want your selfish, cursed money. I want your money that's holy and dedicated out of a life overflowing with the mission of God that saved yours and mine, sorry behinds, and has repurposed us to save other people's. That's what we overflow out of. And that's what he's saying to the Pharisees. He's like, oh, good for you, you self-righteous jerks. You're the wealthy in society and you give 10% away, but you don't love people. Get your worship out of my house. He says, you should be tithing, but that's the least part of what I want you to do. The tithing's the smallest part of what I want you to do. So if giving our finances to God and tithing is hard for us, it should make us a little concerned at what other more significant areas of our lives are not surrendered to Jesus. And his grace is sufficient. He will forgive us, but we will not flourish the way we were intended. We will not shine the light of Jesus the way that we were intended to. So Jesus assumed we would tithe, but he wants us to do it with the right motives in mind. Remember, Jesus said, it's about your heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Right, tithing needs to be done with the right heart. 1 Corinthians 16, one and two, is written by the Apostle Paul to some of the Greek churches that he's discipling. There's no Jews among them. They don't have a Jewish pattern of tithing. Maybe like me and you, they learn about tithing midlife and they realize like, shoot, now I have to live on 10% less of my income? So Paul is discipling these non-Jewish believers and he says this, now regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave to the churches in Galatia. So this is common amongst all the churches. On the first day of each week, you should each put aside a portion of the money you have earned. These were urban people, they got paid in money, not agriculture. So he says every week when you get your pay, put aside a piece on the first day of each week, put aside a portion of the money you've earned. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. Why? Because if we wait and give God the last, we end up giving God the worst or nothing at all, right? He's saying on the first day of the week, before you go grocery shopping, before you pay your bills, before you do anything else, you got the pay from last week, put aside a portion, give God the first and the best. Give God the first and the best and then go about your business. Then go about your life. Then go do your grocery shopping. Then pay your bills. But give God the first and the best. So Paul taught the non-Jewish church the practice of tithing, of giving the first and the best to God. And so the question for us is how do we actually give to God, right? You're like, Caleb, maybe you're a little cynical. I can be a little cynical sometimes. You're like, Caleb, I know where this is going. Give your money to God, but next I'm gonna be writing a check to Caleb Bryant, Right? And first of all, no, don't write any checks with my name on them. But secondly, how do we give money to God? And this is often the part that people struggle with. People, people often are like, I want to be generous to God, but I'm going to pick 
where it goes to. And interestingly, if you remember Exodus, the passage that we looked at, Exodus 23, 19, it said, as you harvest the crops, bring the very best and the first of the harvest to the house of the Lord. God had a place in mind where he wanted it to go. And in the Old Testament, all of the tithe was given to, and the offerings, the various sacrifices, really 100% of them, were all given to the priests. And they were entrusted to the priests to enable the ministry, the various versions of ministry. Some of the ministry was to God himself. Some of the ministry was to the poor of the land. Some of the ministry was in different situations going on in their culture. There were a variety of ministries the priests were in charge of, but all of those ministries were to bring God's presence to earth in various capacities. But that money was entrusted to the priests, and God specifically says in the Old Testament law, and the priests get a portion of every sacrifice, to support their families. The priests were compensated. The temple was maintained. They had a room in the temple where treasure was stored up and when the temple was getting worn out or broken down or or something fell apart, they would use that money to pay people to fix it, right? And the ministry was funded. Compassion to the people within the people of Israel was funded. And in the New Testament, Paul was teaching the churches the same model. And you see this in the book of Acts. Right after Acts chapter 2, you see that people, in Acts chapter 4, you see people bringing funds to the apostles. And some of those funds were used to help the poor. Some of those funds were used to extend missionaries. Some of those funds were used, and they would send them to the poorest churches in the world. That Paul was very passionate about that, Right? But they would bring it to the leadership of the church. And we see in the book of Acts, we see that part of that was compensating the apostles so that they could focus their time on two things, prayer and preaching of the word. Sometimes that is hard for me to carve out time for prayer and preaching of the word in the midst of all the other things needed to run a church like this. But at the end of the day, if I'm going to be the pastor that, you, that I'm called to be, if I'm going to be somebody that tries to listen to God and deliver his word faithfully, I have to be disciplined to give my time to prayer and preaching of the word. And since the apostles, part of the way that the church does that is through giving financially. In fact, Paul would say later, he'd say, hey, sometimes when I'm planting a church, I don't take an income, but it's absolutely appropriate for the elders of the church to receive an income the pastors of the church to receive an income so that they can do their ministry. Now, I realize all these things sound self-serving. I just don't know who else is gonna teach this to you other than someone that it would sound self-serving by, so you get to judge. So they brought it to the leadership of the church and that compensated the leadership and the ministry of the church and later it was used to maintain and build places of ministry. As Christians got kicked out of synagogues and not allowed in the temple anymore after the first century, they began to meet in houses but as churches expanded beyond houses, they would often pay to build buildings, right? And we see over the course of church history that finances of the church were used to build and maintain buildings like many temples, And that's really how it works today, that tithes at Sound Life Church cover paying for the staff and the facilities and the ministries of Sound Life Church within itself, right? You think like, how do we have a nice kids auditorium? How does Susie have money to play crazy games with students on Wednesday nights? Tithe money pays for that. Like how do we we have pastors show up here five, six, seven days a week working their jobs? Not supposed to be seven because we're supposed to Sabbath somewhere in there, all right? But... How how does that happen? The tithes of the church pay for that. 
How does this building get maintained? Ties of the church pay for that. This last year at our business meeting, we took out a loan to help cover some major facilities projects. How are we paying the payment on that loan? Your tithes are paying for that payment on that loan, right? And so that's how tithes work, and it's how tithes work, and I think should work in, in every church. They don't always. So sometimes it's good, like in our annual business meeting on March 5th, you can come and you can see how are we managing and stewarding the finances of the church. Are we stewarding tithes in the way that the Bible indicates that we should? And then we receive additional offerings, like a mission forward pledge next week, to add to our impact beyond the ministry of the church. Do you know the greatest ministry of the church is you. You're better than any event the church will ever do. You are the greatest evangelism of the church, better than any Billy Graham are the people of the church. The people of the church have won more people to Jesus than all of the evangelists put together. Evangelists just do it in big crowds, right? You are the ministry of the church. But when we take special offerings for Priority One, Convoy of Hope, Mission Forward Pledges, it allows us to, to, to supplement churches around the world, ministries around the world. If you're looking in your Mission Forward brochure, you see this year we're helping a couple of churches that just can't financially support the ministry on their own. Daybreak Church in Eatonville, Risen Church up in South, in South King County. We're helping them get off the ground because we are blessed and we want to see the church go forward. We're helping Priority One because they're building churches and buildings in parts of the world we'll never get to. We're helping Convoy of Hope because they're meeting needs at the most desperate places around the world. right? So we take special offerings to help cover those things. But here's the key. Here's the key. When you tithe, and offerings can be a little more flexible, but when you tithe, you're meant to give to God through his bride not your chosen mechanism. And here's the scary part about that for me. When you surrender your finances to God by giving them to Sound Life Church, I am held doubly responsible. So the Bible says I'm held doubly responsible. The board and the pastors of the church are responsible. We talk about this in our management team meetings. This is God's worship money. Are we spending it the way that God would want it to be spent? This is God's worship money. This is people's sacrifice. Are we spending it the way God would want it to be spent? Because we're accountable. We're gonna stand before God and give an account. So when you give to the church, you might, you might be tempted to grumble and be like, why, do they, you know, why are they supporting that youth ministry? Or why do they do this? Or I hate that. I don't know if I wanna give my tithe here. And God's like, that's not your tithe. That belongs to me. That's not your decision. That's between me and the leaders I've appointed, and I will hold them accountable. Jesus, have mercy. Right? And so there's a part of it, and did you know that our pastors do the same thing? But I don't get to tithe to the church I want to tithe to. I want to tithe to Sound Life Church because I like it the best. But because I belong to a movement that holds me accountable, the Assemblies of God, our pastors all actually tithe to the assemblies of God because they are our shepherds. They guard our walks. They hold us accountable when we are weary or broken. They provide us pastoral counsel. They help us. They are our resource unto the Lord. And so we tithe to them. And can I tell you, sometimes I'm tempted. I'm like, I don't like the way they're spending my money. I don't like the way. I, I'd rather tithe the Sound Life Church. We do way better than they do. I hope they don't listen to this message. <laughs> That's in my sin. And the Lord reminds me. He says, hey, Caleb, 
that's between me and them. That's none of your business. Your business is to dedicate your finances to me by tithing. And so I send my tithe with a cheerful heart saying, God, this is for you, not for them. This is for you, not for me to worry about. I surrender it to you. So tithing is obediently returning the first and best tenth of your resources to God by giving it to his church. And just remember, it's your resources, whatever God gives you. This drives my wife crazy, but I tithe off of gift cards. If somebody gives me a gift card, we tithe off of it. I tithe off of like any random, if I get birthday money, I tithe off of it. We teach our kids to tithe off their birthday money. Why? It all comes from God. I'm like, baby, we're going to Red Robin on Jesus. I'm gonna give him back his 10%, and I'm not gonna buy him a burger because he can't eat it, right? So now, you can kind of work through your own convictions on what that looks like. I tithe off of the gross of my income before the government takes an obscene amount more than God out of it, I tithe off of my gross income because God gave me all of it. It's not his fault that the government takes a lot of it. So tithing is obediently returning the first and best tenth of your resources to God by giving it to his church. It's a complete release of control. And we don't like to release control, but it's so worshipful and freeing when we do. And then it's between those who steward it and God. And offering, on the other hand, as opposed to tithing, is when our passions our compassion and our obedience to the Spirit's prompting lead to generosity, right? But tithing is an act of obedient trust. You see how one is God saying, hey, you're my kids. Go be generous like I'm generous. Go do good things with your money like I like to do good things. Like offering is about God releasing us to do good things with his finances he stewarded us. Tithing is about obedient trust. It's about maintaining a healthy, worshipful relationship with God in our finances. One is the foundation and the other is the overflow. Tithing is the foundation. Offerings are the overflow, right? And this can seem like a lot to ask. And so I wanna close today by reminding us why God calls us to give him first dibs on our finances, And the first reason is the most important reason. It's that giving God our first and best proves that Jesus is Lord of our finances. And there's times when Jesus needs to know that he's Lord of your finances. There's times when you need to know that he's Lord of your finances. And we, in a culture that worships mammon, that worships money. In fact, what do they say wins every argument in our culture? Money. Right, what do we see that in politics is often the vying factor, the the most dominant factor in politics is often not what's right or wrong or what's smart or dumb, it's often money, right? What sways decisions in board meetings in most of the businesses we work for? It's money, not what is right or wrong, right? Money is a God to us. And the world needs to see people that money is not their God. Tithing, giving God our first and best proves that Jesus is Lord of our finances. And that is a powerful witness to a world that is desperate for money. Secondly, giving God our first and best is how God provides for his church. God is both practical and spiritual at the same time. I've read some some different statistics that said if every Christian actually tithed, the church wouldn't know what to do with the amount of money that it had. Like, there would be no missionary that would go unfunded. There would be no church plant that didn't have the funds. There would be, like, if every Christian in the world tithed, it would be the most powerful financial force on the planet. But so many Christians don't trust God on this. 
We'll talk about that next week, the, blessing, the blessings and, and challenges of giving. Third, giving God our first and best is how God blesses our finances. We'll talk more about this next week, but Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything that you produce. And then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. Now take it easy on the overflowing wine, okay? But the point there was in an agricultural society, grain and wine were the two best things that they could have, right? So you honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything. You tithe and you honor God with your finances and God says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take care of you. I'm gonna take care of your needs. I'm gonna take care of your desires. I'm going to take care of you. Now next week, if you're like a little too serious, this is not like a, a, you know, a name it, claim it, or like you give and God's gonna give you back with 10% return. No, 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 no. God's blessing is a little more complex than just like a financial investment, right? But I'd rather have God's blessing than the greatest retirement package in the world. When you tithe, God more than makes it up to you. He won't be like, oh, man, uh, whoops. You know, I forgot about Kevin and he's really struggling now. Man, I shouldn't have told him to tithe because now he's in, I can't fix that. God's not caught off guard by our obedience. He's ready to bless us. And so as we close today, maybe some of you are like, man, Caleb, finances have been tough. Like work has been tough. I've got more bills than I know what to do with. I've got you know, more kids with more costs than I know what to do with. Man, my, I, I'm living on a small retirement and I don't know what to do, how, to, how to live on that. And, and can I just say, first of all, God has compassion on, on the situations that we're in. God's not like down on you because of that. I do think that what God is saying though is he's like, hey, will you trust me in a radical way so that I can provide for you in a radical way? I really do think that that's what I've seen in my own life. I remember coming to Christ as a young adult and learning at that age from, from a youth pastor, actually, what it meant to tithe, and I, I determined I would start doing that. And through some really difficult seasons in our early marriage and family, really through all of our 20s, that was a real sacrifice, a real sacrifice. It often cost things that I would have liked to get from my wife and my kids. And yet, I've also seen God provide in some miraculous ways. Again, I'll share more about that and I see heads nodding all around the room because those of you that tithe, you know it's weird. It's weird how good God is. It's weird how God comes through. My father-in-law, he's, he, he drives cars that should have died at 120,000 miles and they're like still running great at three. Literally, he has a car right now, 350,000 miles. And, I, and I'm like, how is this car still moving? He's like, Caleb, I tithe. Like, I, I tithe and I do oil changes. Like, I have done nothing else. And, and I think that, that it's just a beautiful partnership, right? Like, we do oil changes and God does blessings, right? We do maintenance and God does the miraculous. That's a good line. I should have thought of that, Susie. Rem, rem, remember that next week, if I don't. But here's what I would say, is I would say to start trusting God with you, what you've got by taking disciplined steps to give God your first and your best. Start taking disciplined steps. Start taking risks. Start saying no to some things that you want. For some of you that have teenagers, you need to have some real honest conversations with your teenagers about how you wanna honor God with your finances because I know how it is. 
I've only got one and I've got two more teenagers on the way. It's crazy how much money that they can need, right? But can I tell you that it was a youth pastor saying, Caleb, can I challenge you to start doing this that has released God's blessing in my life? Teenagers, don't wait. Elementary school kids, don't wait. Start cultivating in your heart. And adults, I would just challenge you, and I say this out of love. If you need to go tithe to a different church because you're mad at me for saying this message, then go tithe to a different church. You have to go there and serve and worship too. Okay, don't just come here and then tithe there. But like, go, go to another church if you want, but start tithing. Take the radical step, and will it hurt? Yes. At first, it will hurt. But will you see God's miraculous hand move in your life? I'm pretty darn confident you will. And God is 100% confident that you will. So take some radical steps. Why do I preach this to you? I preached this to all of us, to all of our venues, all of our campuses, because I do believe that there comes a point when a nation that has worshipped money as much as we have, it will run out. Right? We will hit hard times. There will be difficult things. And I don't know, I don't, you know, if you don't come after and be like, should I sell my house, should I keep it? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know real estate and economics. I know the Bible. And what I know is that the only thing that can protect us from death and destruction and deception is the blessing of God. And the way that we walk in God's blessing in a broken world is through our obedience. So let's be obedient to Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, we give ourselves to you. And Lord, these truths, they, they are hard because they, they hit home on some of the most practical and yet difficult parts of life for us. And Lord, I just pray that you would remind us in this moment of your goodness in our lives. I pray that we would hear the principle of tithing not from a God who desires to oppress us, but we would hear it from a God who has sent his first and best son to die on a cross for us. I pray that we would hear it from a God who has stopped at nothing to pursue us. I pray that we would be invited not into some financial slavery to a harsh ruler, but that we would just be invited into an adventure with a God who loves us and has the power to provide and protect in any circumstance. So, Father, we give ourselves to you. We thank you for your provision in our lives. Help us to take the next steps of devoting our finances to you. In Jesus' name, amen.